My sermon reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, and I'll carry through chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. <clears throat> but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds... I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks for your wonderful word, the light that you have shown upon your people. We thank you that though you spoke in the past to the prophets at many times and in various ways, you have in these last days spoken by your Son. You have given us the fullness of your revelation. And so we would see Jesus here, Father. We ask that you would shine the light of Christ from this passage. Father, give us eyes to see what is here, ears to hear it, minds to understand it, hearts to love it, and wills to be inclined and transformed more into the image of Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you're like me, uh, you have been both grieved as well as angered 
over the recent atrocities that were committed against the nation of Israel several weeks ago, which have, of course, drawn them into a war with Hamas. There is no defense, none, for those heinous acts of terrorism that were perpetrated by violent men, especially when they're committed in the name of a so-called God. Israel has a right to defend itself and to declare war on Hamas. And frankly, I pray that Hamas either repents or is utterly decimated, and Hezbollah too, if they should choose to join the fight. And yet, because Israel is so powerful, and you know they are powerful, right? They actually have the capability to annihilate the nations around them. It's the only nuclear superpower in the Middle East. Of course, Iran is close behind. But because they are so powerful, I do want to see them restrain themselves so that innocent casualties are minimized. What I mean to say is that if Israel is going to use their weapons, I want them to use them to punish evildoers, to restrain evil, to defend those who are innocent bystanders. And honestly, I believe Israel has done that. I think over and over they have done that. Over and over they have restrained themselves in war. Look, I want to be clear. I don't mean to present Israel as a nation that can do no wrong, and I'm also not using them as an example because I think we ought to side with them simply because they are Israel, God's chosen people. But I can think of no other nation in history that has had to restrain itself like the modern state of Israel. Israel's given back land that it captured through wars where it was attacked, where it was provoked. Whenever they have had to respond, they've tried to minimize casualties by announcing where they're going to be attacking so that civilians can escape unscathed. And of course, unlike Hamas, Israel does not target women and children. They defend their people with their weapons. Hamas, on the other hand, defends its weapons with its people. It's very despicable that they would place their weapons in hospitals and schools and the like. Israel's shown tremendous restraint in the face of tremendous wickedness. Again, they've had the weapons to destroy Hamas, and I think they would be completely justified in using them. But they use these weapons to restrain evil, and they restrain themselves from using these weapons at all, and in doing so, they show tremendous restraint and tolerance. I believe Israel's restraint is a reflection of what we see here in Genesis 8 and 9. Here we see a God of restraint. Our God, first of all, restrains wickedness with a righteous threat of retaliation and retribution. Whoever sheds the, the, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. But then also, God restrains himself. God restrains wickedness and God restrains himself. He restrains the wickedness of wicked men with the sword, and he restrains himself, though he is not wicked. He restrains himself with a bow. I want us to look at each of those in turn. First, then, is that God restrains the wickedness of wicked men with the sword. We see this in verses 5 and 6. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in his own image. Now I know that no sword is mentioned here. We'll get to that. But let's first focus on God's determination to restrain the wickedness of man through this prescription. You know, at this juncture, I think it might be helpful for us to just kind of rewind and review a little bit of what we've seen previously so that we have a context for this command. Back in uh, Genesis 6, which I covered several weeks ago, we saw that the sons of God, they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and so they took any that they chose. They intermarried with them. I said, now, whether those are fallen angels that intermarried with sinful women or whether it was the line of Seth, the righteous line of Seth intermarrying with the sinful line of Cain, the effect was the same, right? The complete corruption of mankind. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, only evil continually. That is as bad as it gets. Listen, that was not God's plan. Of course it was not God's plan in creation, but it was also not his plan after the fall. Remember that God's plan was to establish enmity, war, strife, a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman was supposed to crush the seed of the serpent. But instead, what do we see? We saw the, the seed of the serpent beginning to swallow up the seed of the woman. And things are looking pretty bleak. But even here, God showed restraint. He could have just wiped out mankind. He could have just taken him away from the face of the earth. But instead, he does what through the flood? He, he washes the earth clean. And he gives a remnant of mankind a new beginning, a genesis. I don't say that to minimize the fact that this has been a tremendous act of judgment. God said he would blot out man along with the animals and every creeping thing. But Noah, right? Noah found favor in the sight of God. And we saw a few weeks ago that Noah was indeed saved by grace through faith. In any case, this is a new beginning, isn't it? We can see this in Genesis 8, verse 13. I know I didn't read that verse, but it says that when the waters dried up, they dried up on the first day of the first month, on the 601st year of Noah's life. It's New Year's Day for Noah and for all mankind. And indeed, he disembarks the ark surrounded by the animals. This is very much a picture of a new Adam surrounded by God's creatures. Not only this, but we witness the reinstatement of the creation mandate here, don't we? Verse 1 says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be exceedingly fruitful. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? However, this time the mandate has a twist. The next thing the Lord said is that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast, every creature of the earth. For, furthermore, God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Now, does that mean that up until this point that man has been a vegetarian? I don't know. He gave Adam and Eve skins in the first place to cover their nakedness. Not sure whether they were veg vegetarians before this, but at the very least, God now sanctions the consumption of animal flesh. And this is an indication that sin is irreversible. 
You see, amidst this pristine new beginning is a reminder that sin has forever marred mankind and the world. Even with a fresh start, there's going to be fear and dread and the death of animals for the sake of mankind. Of course, we saw that foreshadowed by the fact that when he disembarked, Noah offered up ascension offerings to the Lord, a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord of clean animals. But once again, even with the consumption of animals, there's a restraint that's prescribed. Notice that even though God offers man the life of animals for man's sustenance, he restrains man from being bloodthirsty. He restricts man from eating flesh with blood in it. And the point of this is that the life of the animal is sacred to God. Animals are sacred to God. We see this indicated in the use of the word life in verse 4. Its life is in its blood. That word life is nephesh. It's actually the same word that's used in Genesis 2, verse 7, where God breathes into man the breath of life and man becomes a living being. Isn't that remarkable that animals also have nephesh? Now that isn't to say that we aren't more sacred than animals. On the contrary, giving the animals to us as food reinforces that we are more precious than they are. And of course, verse 6, which asserts that we're created in the image of God, that also reinforces that. But we aren't completely set apart from the animals. After all, we were created on the same day that they were. And what makes it all the more amazing then is that they're given to us as food. But of course, it does suggest with that prohibition, that restraint that we're to exercise, that we should demonstrate respect and restraint in our consumption. Hopefully I've not obscured what my main point was with too much detail here. Let me try and rewind and return to the point that I originally submitted, which is that God is determined to restrain the wickedness of man. What I've wanted us to see by the buildup of this command is that God provides the sacred life of animals for mankind. Therefore, he, if he's going to require a reckoning for their blood, how much more is that true for man himself? I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. I can even see the chiasm in there, Pastor Jeffrey, right? It's also a play on words, with words blood and man. Word for blood in Hebrew is dam. The word for man is adam. Dam hadam, badam dam. It's catchy, right? It's meant. It's meant to be memorable. It's meant to be held on to. It's meant to serve as a memorable deterrent. It's meant to serve as a restraint for sin. And honestly, this is something new. What happened when Cain killed Abel? Was whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed? Was that enacted? No. In fact, it was the contrary, wasn't it? God put a mark on Cain to keep anyone who found him from attacking him. And what about Lamech, the seventh generation? Lamech killed a man just for wounding him, and then he spoke profanely. 
He bragged. He said, if Cain be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech be avenged 77-fold. It was like he was saying, bring it on, Lord. What are you going to do about it? Cain and Lamech got away with murder. But now God's going to restrain man's sin. That's good news. It's good news that our God restrains man's sin. And this is a good command. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God is going to restrain evil. Friends, Christians should never speak ill of the death penalty as something that is ugly or wrong. The death penalty is just. The death penalty is God's idea. It is his prescription for how to deter murder and restrain evil in the world. And Christians should uphold it. When you think about it, the death penalty is actually quite pro-life. I know that's counterintuitive. <laughs> this whole passage is, in fact, pro-life. First, man is commissioned to procreate. Next, all of life, not just man, but all of life, even the animal lives, are affirmed as sacred. And then finally, in the strictest terms possible, God penalizes the unjust taking of a human life. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. But then, of course, it is the role of the state to execute this function. I know this may not be evident from this text, but Paul, speaking in another place to the Romans, says the authorities that exist, they've been instituted by God. Yes, even brutal Rome was instituted by God. And Paul says they are servants of God. He calls them avengers. Avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul says, do you fear the one who's in authority? Well, then do what's good and you will receive his approval. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He's the avenger who does not bear the sword in vain. Uh, there it is, finally, right? The sword. God restrains evil with the sword. God institutes and ordains governing authorities to act as avengers who carry out his wrath on evildoers. And governors are just when they fulfill this function. In fact, it seems like maybe we've lost sight of this as being the primary function of government. Governments, they're not instituted by God to provide for the needs of the poor. They're not instituted by God to solve all of society's ills, but they are called to protect life. And they are called to avenge life. And if this is the case, if governors are justified when they execute their own murderous citizens, then aren't they also righteous when they avenge their citizens by going to war against nations who murder their people? I think so. I think there are just wars. Christians don't have to be silly pacifists in that regard. We can stand with countries that are engaged in just wars for just causes. Well, God restrains the wickedness of man with the sword, but God's not just in, intent on restraining our wickedness. He also restrains himself. And he restrains himself with a bow. 
When you picture a rainbow, what do you think of? Many of you might think of light, right? Without light, there's not going to be a rainbow. The sun comes out once again after the storm. Indeed, that probably would have been the picture here. God sent a deluge upon the earth, but now the clouds, they've parted. And he's shining down his glorious light, maybe his favor, a picture of his favor once again on mankind. Maybe you think of the beautiful colors, of course, associated with a rainbow. Children are always encouraged to color rainbows because rainbows are beautiful. And they're innocuous, right? Not anymore. The rainbow has been hijacked. We all know this. It didn't happen overnight, though. Almost 40 years ago, there was Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, a political action, social justice movement that pursued very progressive policies, something Jackson rolled out in the 84 Democratic National Convention, where he called on disparate minorities, as well as gays and lesbians and even disabled veterans and small farmers to unite under one banner, a rainbow banner, the Rainbow Coalition. But even before that, in 1978, the rainbow flag, which has, of course, come to be known as what? The pride flag. That replaced the pink triangle and was flown in San Francisco at a gay parade in honor of Harvey Milk, the first openly gay politician to be elected in the state of California. And the rest, as they say, is history, right? How far we've come in just a few decades with the rainbow. Just a couple of months ago, the pride flag, the rainbow flag, was unfurled at the White House, prominently displayed between two American flags. It was proudly flown because the rainbow is a symbol of enlightenment. It is a symbol of tolerance. Of course, many would say that you must, you've got to be down with displaying and loving the rainbow. Right? That's the only intolerance that we cannot permit. The rainbow has been hijacked. But let me ask you something. Do you think that the rainbow was meant by God to serve as a symbol of tolerance? Think about that. It does seem that that's precisely what God used it to convey. His tolerance. His Restraint. I think in order to see this most clearly, first we have to recognize something very academic, very, very simple, foundational, that the rainbow is not really a rainbow at all, is it? It's not what it's called here. It's simply referred to as a bow. The Hebrew word is kesheth. It's the same word which is used of a bow and arrow. In other words, this is another weapon of war. Who's at war? God's been at war, hasn't he? God just destroyed the world with a flood. He went to war against his creation because it had become utterly depraved and corrupted and ruined. But now in verse 13, it says that God has set his bow in the clouds. He hangs up his bow. It's like it's on the wall. God is saying he's not at war now. In fact, God says he will look at the bow and he will be reminded. 
Notice that beginning in verse 14, God says, When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Again in verse 16, he says, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant that I have established. We tend to think of the bow as a sign for us, and certainly I think it is, but God hangs that bow in the sky to remind himself, to remind himself that he will restrain himself. God says, I will see it, and I will remember my promise, my covenant with mankind. Is the rainbow, the bow hung in the clouds, is that a sign of God's tolerance? You bet it is. And consider this, God restrains himself from an ongoing war with mankind despite the fact that man hasn't really changed at all. We see this in a couple of ways. First of all, notice that in in chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord, when he smelled the pleasing aroma of the ascension offering that Noah made, God said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God didn't say, I'll stop warring against man because he's learned his lesson and he's improved. Despite the fact that man will continue to wallow in his sin. You know, next week we're going to look at the Tower of Babel. Even after man comes off the ark, he finds himself mired in sin. But even in the rest of this chapter, which we didn't take time to read, man once again falls back into sin. One of Noah's sons, Ham, he did something despicable. There are lots of interpretations out there of what it means that he uncovered his father's nakedness, frankly, because I think it's a euphemism. I'll honor that by not being crass at this point. But suffice it to say, I think there's some sufficient reason to believe that Ham did something very perverse that that warranted the cursing of his own son. But God blessed two lines out of that episode. God brought good out of evil. God does not scrap his plan. My point is that God is going to be tolerant even though man hasn't really changed. This is amazing. This is, in fact, common grace at work. Not just grace among believers, but grace that covers all of creation. In the words of Jesus, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So look, if if a holy God the one who's truly offended by sin can be patient, restraining himself from judging sin in sinful man. Shouldn't we as well? I mean, if God can be tolerant, shouldn't we be too? God has hung up his bow, and I think that's a signal for us. God's not at war with mankind. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we also are not at war against flesh and blood. This doesn't mean we have to be squishy and soft. Doesn't mean we're silent either. You know, being silent is actually being quite hateful. The apostle Peter called Noah herald of righteousness. He preached righteousness to the dying generation around him. We should be distressed by the conduct of the wicked, 
tormented by the lawless deeds. And we should open our mouths and proclaim salvation from destruction as long as today is today. And just because we're called to be tolerant and restrain ourselves from warring against the culture, that certainly doesn't mean we have to capitulate. It doesn't mean we accept the rainbow as an appropriate symbol of sinful pride. Restraining ourselves from judgment does not mean that we're called to turn a blind eye to evil and in doing so, outrage the spirit of grace. If God did not spare the world, as Peter said, when he brought a flood upon the ungodly, then he knows how to rescue the godly from trials while keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the day of his judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions until the day of his judgment. Yes, the rainbow reminds God to restrain himself, but his bow, his weapon of war, it is still up on the wall, isn't it? And if the world that existed then was deluged, with water and perished, the heavens and earth that now exist, they're being stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's a sobering thought. You know, I realize I've preached a bit of a fragmented message this morning. Think about what I've asserted. On the one hand, God restrains the wickedness of sinful man by instituting Men, avengers, if you will, who bear the sword and carry out his wrath on evildoers. But on the other hand, God says, I'll show patience and tolerance and I will restrain myself. Which should probably restrain us from practicing intolerant judgments on men. So which is it? One's a picture of restraining evil, which emphasizes justice. The other, a picture of restraining judgment, which emphasizes mercy. How is God going to show tolerance when he just showed us he won't tolerate sin? I think the answer lies in what the rainbow points to. And I mean points to literally. The rainbow points to Christ. God says he's placed his bow in the clouds. Remember, it's a bow. It's a weapon of war. When you string a bow, when you string a bow, which way would the arrow be pointing? It'd be pointing to heaven itself, wouldn't it? Who will bear the penalty for man's persistent sin? God himself will in the person of his son. God patiently restrained himself from pouring out his wrath on sin and sinful man here. But at the cross, he's going to pour out the full force of his wrath on his beloved son. And therefore, we as believers, we must take hold of Christ. There's no other sacrifice for sins left. You know, it's obviously a tremendous evil to turn the rainbow, a symbol of God's restraint, into a license for sin and immorality and even a symbol of pride. For in doing so, we profane the spirit of grace which saves us. We know that even the church, the so-called church in the West, they need a modern reformation in this respect. Yet our God is a God of restraint who still calls the wicked to repentance, just as he has called us 
to repentance. May God grant us grace to be a people who likewise demonstrate restraint while we patiently wait for his salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your mercy has triumphed over judgment, that you have shown yourself merciful to us. We pray that we would be empowered this week to extend your mercy to those who are dying and perishing, calling them to repentance. May we demonstrate the kind of restraint that you have demonstrated with us. And Father, we thank you for your common grace over all of creation. We thank you that you desire to see all men saved. So move us with your heart to bear that word. Thank you, Lord, for this service. We pray that it would be pleasing in your sight, just as Noah offered up those sacrifices to you, a pleasing aroma. We pray that our lives would be living sacrifices to you, holy and acceptable. Hear our prayer by the one who lives to intercede for us. In his name we pray, amen.